Sure. <laughs> Welcome everybody to Red Truth and White Lies, a podcast of two Canada's. Very, very excited today to have Andrew Hunter on. Um, we talked to him last night on King's Court. That was pretty epic. And it's going to be a whole new set of wild today because Nick's got some, I know he's got some questions and some, some, some stuff to say. So um, before we get started, though, uh, we're at 30 shows now. So, 30. The 30. dirty 30s. Here we go, brother. The dirty 30s. So uh, since we're there, we want to give a big shout out to all the ones that helped us get here. So great big huge shout out to Tribe Cannabis and Six Nations there at 2023 Chiefswood Road. Six Nations, make sure you head up there as well as Cultured. Um, they're at 395 um, Third Line on Six Nations as well. Uh, make sure you follow them up on Instagram. Also shout out to Higher Quality. Give them a big huge fat follow as well as Choice Edibles, Fool's Gold Chocolate and Elixir Extracts. We couldn't be here where we are today without you guys. Um, so thank you for your sponsorship and um, let's get into this interview. <laughs> so Nick, how you doing today? I'm doing good. I got pretty pretty wet this morning. It's raining good today. Uh, at least it was here. Uh, I was out milking and yeah. It out was there nice. working moistly? Yeah, out there working moistly. You know what? Um, I would rather be out there getting soaking wet, getting slapped in the face with a, a, a tail of a cow that's wet, usually covered with shit, um, you know, taking it right across the face, uh, I'd rather be doing that than working for the man or exactly. working for somebody else, man, you know, do what you love and love what you do. Yeah, exactly. So uh, I was going to mention, I also got very wet this morning because, uh, my dog Zag and I, uh, went to the beach strip at 5 AM. Oh, wow. And, uh, so, and it's dark, so she's rolling and stuff. I don't know what it is, but, um, it's How do you do a lot of hand sanitizer in the truck on before we got home? I think you found some pet. Let's just say that. Anyway. Oh wow! Yeah. So, like, I made a post um, earlier this morning, and I know Mr. Ross Cotrizi has talked about it before. Nick knows about it. You, people that get up early, they're doing the work. You know, the people yes, that are up at four or five o'clock in the morning, we're doing something. There's something to be accomplished. There's a goal. You know. Whether it be spreading a message, whether it be trying to feed people, whether it be trying to feed yourself, you know, there's something to do. There's a goal at the end of it. And it's not all just revolving around your personal life. Yeah. You know, the people that get up in the morning and do these things are doing it for a reason. It's not for anything for self gain, anything like that. It's to do something. So we have Andrew Hunter on today and the work that he's been doing is just amazing. He's been bringing light to slavery in Canada, which... I think people like to shout under the rug, you know, because even just last night he was talking about it and we were talking and we were talking about the Underground Railroad and everything like that and how um, Canada seemed to be like this big sanctuary and this like that. But only 30 years before there was slavery. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, yeah. tell us about your project that you're working on right now, please. Like, it's it's just amazing. Yeah. Everybody needs to hear it. Yeah, I guess there's two connected things. They all come under the umbrella of this work I've been doing for four or five years around the story of a woman named uh, Sophia Burthen Pooley, who was uh, born in the United States, Fishkill, New York, in the Hudson Valley. Uh, she would have been, she was born just before the American Revolution. When she was a child, she was stolen with her sister or kidnapped. Uh, she was enslaved. She was taken from uh, an enslaved uh, parent and then taken up to Albany and across the Mohawk Valley to um, Niagara 
she was actually sold to Tyne Deneg of Joseph Brandt. Brandt then brought her into Canada, what is now Canada in 1785. She lived with the Brandt family. And then uh, she was sold at the end of Brandt, Joseph Brandt's life to uh, a man named Samuel Hatt, who was one of the founders of Dundas, where I lived for a long time, but is part of the city of Hamilton. And so 30 years she lived enslaved in Canada, right? Yeah. And um, so the, the work I've been doing around research, uh, talks and some mo small projects with young uh, artists, then into writing a book, which will come out in January, that's been a huge chunk of work. But then in July, I started a, like a public intervention guerrilla public history project, which was um, I put up, I made these signs, very official looking, like the kind of sign City Hamilton would do, you know, blue with white text or, you know, sometimes it changes color. But they just say, Sophia Berthin Pooley, born Fishkill, New York, died the Queensbush, Canada West, lived here, enslaved in the home of Samuel and Margaret Hatt. And so it's the intervention is very directed at Hamilton and Dundas, uh, Ancaster. She would have lived in an area known as Ancaster Township, which would now be uh -huh. um, the south half of Dundas up through the valley and then to Ancaster. Uh -huh. And um, we can talk more about her. It would be really interesting to talk about Tyndanega, Joseph Brandt. Um, yeah. That's really complicated. Uh, yeah. Yeah, obviously. Yeah, right. Like and. <laughs> It's yeah, not really complicated at all. <laughs> it's really not that complicated at all to us. As no, uh, no, but I think for readers outside, it will be. Yes, right. Yeah, it will be. And that's what I think would be interesting to talk about is like your yeah. perspective on. <laughs> um, so, and then the other part. Um, <laughs> so the signs, like they go up, and initially, I, 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 uh, like Nick, you saw one. I, uh, the first set of them went on the official like welcome to Dundas like boundary signs for the t what was the town we have to be clear Dundas does not exist as a legal entity anymore it's part oh. of the city of Hamilton so oh. the first signs I put there and and one was to trouble Dundas one was to trouble the history um but the other was there's this stupid sign on right you've seen it Nick and it's it's like Dundas and then there is one sign that acknowledges a piece of Dundas history and it's, yeah. um, you know, to, you know, honors an amateur hockey team. Yeah. Won the Allen cup in 2014 and yeah. that's it. And it's like, okay, that's what you choose to remember a hockey team, amateur team. And I want to be clear, like I'm not a hockey person. I'm not really a sports person. I did play hockey when I was young, but I was a goalie. So I often think that doesn't really count because you're just in your own world, right? Like the teams <laughs> out there, they're all doing stuff and you're just like, you're zone in the, in the net, right? Please don't embarrass me. Please don't embarrass me. And, uh, but, um, you know, the Allen Cup was really important back in the, in the first half of the 20th century. If you looked in Canadian newspapers, it was more important than like the NHL and Stanley Cup and all this stuff. Uh, but it is not, like, come on, it is not a significant thing in 2014. It is to the people that do it. But that the city, like, that's an official sign. So somebody put forward and said, hey, let's add this. We don't have anything else. We're going to add a sign. And the city goes, yes, right? Yes, let's put that up. So putting Sophia's sign there was also a disruption of that, right? So it's layered because Dundas, the town name needs to be changed. The town, because Dundas, is named after Henry 
uh, Dundas, Lord, who was um, Viscount Lord Melville, who was uh, a British lawyer, landowner, really powerful from Edinburgh, MP. Um, he used to be known as, as the, um, like the King of Scotland because he basically had so much power in Scotland. He basically you know, ran and controlled so much, almost like he was royalty. And he uh, like pretty much single-handedly blocked the abolition of slavery in the British Empire for about two decades, cool. like using his political influence. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's yeah. a he's a real yeah. POS. Yeah, <laughs> that's like yeah, we'd like to have a town named after and some streets too. We'll do that. I'm surprised they don't have a statue of him in Dundas. Um, yeah, that's interesting, right? Like there isn't, but. So what's happened was the history and at any point where I'm like, okay, you're like, this is way too much history. Just not enough. There's never too much. Yeah. So, um, so Dundas, it's interesting. So the way, the reason, the name of the town, right? So this is the background and I'll come back to that. And it relates to Sophia. Um, Samuel Hatt, who owns Sophia and his brother, Richard Hatt had come here um, after the American revolution um, and settled, uh, uh, within that region, right? And they get, they're very privileged. They're very connected. They get lots of land for free. Um, they're wheeler dealers. They bring, uh, the Hat family brings 11 indentured servants with them, um, you know, to the area to work for them. Uh, they originally built a mill, like they had land in Anca- what is now the town of Ancaster. They built a mill on Ancaster Creek and um, Still initially there, like a sawmill and stuff. And then, uh, that didn't quite work out, you know, like it was successful, but not successful enough. They built a road, the old Dundas road that takes you down into Dundas proper. Now they built that road. And that was so that people, you know, coming from as far away as Guelph and, and what is now Cambridge would come and, you know, get, uh, access the mill. Then what they do in around uh, is they actually give up that mill and then they move down into Dundas. They get more land rights to use land, the river, the Creek, the whole thing. And they, they take over an existing mill and then they build this massive, their complex. And um, so the town initially had various names. It was kind of known as Spencer mills and uh, hats mills and stuff. But um, the Dundas road, which is you know, the, the road that runs through Toronto downtown and in one direction heads all the way up to Kingston. The other goes through London. That was like a major road that Governor Simcoe had laid out uh, during his brief tenure here. And because he was close to Dundas, the man, um, he named the road and, you know, and then a whole bunch of things uh, take their name from the road. So Dundas initially was Dundas Mills, and that's because the Dundas Road passed through. And that's where the name came. And then when it becomes like uh, the towns laid out by Richard Hatt in 1814. Um, and then when it officially becomes a town in 1847, it is known as Dundas. So, um, so there's like a woo all around. So um, anyways, the town. So yeah, I started putting up the signs. I wanted people to think more about who gets remembered and who gets erased and the, and the real history of this place, right? Uh, Dundas and places like Ancaster are very privileged and very white places. I was just going to say it. Yeah. Just going to say it. Like I I don't like going into Dundas and I really, really don't (laughs) like going to Ancaster. It's just too friggin' white. And like, I mean, I, I wear a brand 
it, that's what people say. My wife says, you got your brand, you got your hat, you know, and I'll, yeah. I'll always wear a shirt that says something on it, like honor the treaties, decolonize, you know, something like that. And the looks that I get from those yeah. people, especially the side looks. And if I look at them, they look away. If I just wear normal clothes and dress like yeah. a, like any other settler, I don't get that. And yeah. what that proves to me right there is how these people vote and who they support in the political system. Yeah. Yeah. That's part of the reason why there's no signs honoring or mentioning the slave trade that no. was here or mm-hmm. the uh, the fact that, you know, Fred Eisenberger himself is pretty much a white supremacist. You know, oh, people yeah. support people support him so much. And it's just it blows my mind. If, if you yeah. saw the correspondence that we had with him, it's on our website. Oh, OK. Uh, yeah. I always I always relate back to it. You can see the change. We were, we were speaking to a person of color originally, and then mm-hmm. the other person came back in from vacation, and the dialogue completely changed. Wow, that's interesting. Um, I've never spoken to Mr. Mayor Fred Eisenberger. Um, I always tag him in all my Instagram posts about the signs, and mm-hmm. some of my like colleagues and mentors, supporters have spoken to him. Um, Stephanie Bass, who's a school teacher in Hamilton and uh, has been working. We've started to work together and, and then with the students uh, at the school uh, she's at are going to be like, I'm giving them some of the damaged signs and things like that. Um, can, I just say, on, oh, um, yeah. can I just say what an amazing, great, strong leader that's too scared to talk to indigenous media. Right. Yeah. Scared. Yeah. yeah. He's afraid. Yeah. I mean, I had to get up and go to the beach and yeah. really zen myself to prepare for this conversation, obviously. <laughs> it's always deep on our show, Andrew. It's always yeah. deep and heavy on our show, yeah. Yeah, yeah, sure. yeah. and that's where you have to go. That's where you learn, right? Like, if you mm-hmm. hide and... Uh, and especially if what people want to talk to you about are the things that you do and you say and, you, and you're out there. Like, um, you know, if you're going to do that work, that like being political is being public. You have a responsibility to engage, right? Exactly. Um, yeah, so let me, I'll just quickly finish with the signs. So basically, yeah, it's like I put the signs up, city people take them down. Um, then I started to expand where I would put them. Um, and I started putting them on this, this private building that was the, is the last surviving building from the Hats Enterprise. And that's at the corner of Governor's and Maine, Dundas, Osler, where these four streets come together. And then those signs get painted over, they get ripped down, they get slashed. Some of the signs I put on the Dundas one, they also get broken and torn and thrown. So then that starts, right? Then this kind of combination of the city removing them, um, even though they're getting people from the communities contacting and saying like, we think this project's important, like leave them up. I'm not asking for my signs to be permanent. I'm just trying to move the conversation and the dialogue. But then all of this sort of cowardly racist backlash um, needed more of a response. So um, I would replace the signs, but then I would also add quotes from some of the writers who've really shaped my thinking, people like James Baldwin, who wrote extensively and was interviewed extensively towards the latter years of his life where he explicitly calls out whiteness and the fiction that is, is colonial and white history. Um, And there's this great quote line from him, which I'll paraphrase, which is um, if you build your story, your history on a lie, 
it will crumble right to dust and he says like clay in a season of drought so mm-hmm. that quote i would put up i'm trying to get people to realize you know the story you tell of this town of dundas of the hats it's a fiction right like so much white history is and that needs to be disrupted and then so those would go up and they would get paint over too um and then i started to write to people in the town so i would put up you know i would make a sign and it would be like you know to the people they would say to the people of this region who can who continue to rip down and damage these signs um and then it would be i would just ask the simple question like what is is your whiteness and privilege so fragile that uh, a simple sign honoring a woman who lived here enslaved for 30 years like can't <laughs> just stay up for you know a few days so yeah. that's kind of gone on i'm fascinated by where they stay up and and the ones that constantly get torn down. There's a big sign I put in front of McMaster University on the city sign. And it often, it it stays up for quite a while. And I think part of it is it's prominent corner, but there's students, there are a lot of students. So that's a spot that if you're gonna go, even if you're like officially the city and and try to remove the sign, there are students around and, and mm. you know, lots of students are engaged in thinking about these things. The other two signs on Poots and Osler, which are very visible, I mean, those ones barely last, but I know that. I mean, I am fortunate I have access with a colleague of mine to screen printing. We just make signs. So I put up over 80 signs and today I'll put up, I'll replace two of the signs, the one on Coots and Osler. That's like Fridays, I replace the sign because they'll last the weekend and then usually Monday, first thing they disappear. Exactly. And what is it, what is it to the settlers out here Mm -hmm. that um, feel the feel so attacked personally by yeah. having things up what are they doing in their lives that yeah. makes them feel so attacked by this yeah you know? yeah and I, was, I, also- I was can i jump in on that one there for a sec andrew yeah and andrew the andrews <laughs> um so i was actually having a conversation with uh, a good friend of mine this morning in regards to to that what what do white people actually do you know towards this feeling or why is it bothering them well, when I, before I decolonized, before I realized what covert racism was and what white fragility was, I can tell you, I can answer that question straight up. And all the white people out there that feel like this are going to get mad at me because they know I'm 100% right. You don't like to be proven wrong and you mm-hmm. never, ever want to be called a racist mm-hmm. because you know it's wrong, but you, you don't want to fix it because you're too fragile, your ego's too big, and you're too afraid to feel those feelings to come out and, and to, to be put in your place as doing something wrong. And like you said, if you perpetuate a lie, if, you're, if your entire history is built on a lie, the entire lives of white people is built on a lie. They lie to themselves every day. Mm-hmm. Every single day they're not healed, they lie to themselves. And I was lying to myself when I wasn't healed either. Mm-hmm. Quit lying to yourself, drop the ego, drop the fragility, and heal from your shit. Because that's the only thing that's going to stop you from feeling the way you do when you see these signs. And honestly, are you that weak and fragile and childish that words bother you that much? Mm-hmm. Yeah, seriously, mm-hmm. people. Exactly. Like, what, what's, what's so hard to accept about the truth? Like, mm-hmm. it's real. It happened. And if you want to live in your little fucking unicorn fancy world, go to Scotland. Because that's their fucking, <laughs> you know, that's their animal. You know yeah. what I mean? Like, yeah. But, I wouldn't even send them over there because they're trying to decolonize themselves too. So like, 
take your covert racism, you know, take all that, smash it. Because like, if you're uncomfortable, you better be. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, and I think you. that's, that is fundamentally what, like at the heart of whiteness is being in charge, right? Yeah. Um, being the holder of, of all knowledge. And, you know, it's like a reflection of being, you know, part of Western European colonial society is like, mm-hmm. you know, we know more. Um, so to get called out is really problematic, right? And yeah. showing vulnerability, showing any kind of weakness uh, um, uh, to be equal, to be to say like we are both. I recognize you as a person, um, right. and uh, I could, and being wrong is how we learn. You know that's part of the journey. Like that is a huge barrier. Like has always been the barrier, and it's a huge mm-hmm. one now. I see that, like you were talking, Nick, about decolonizing, and I brought this up last night, and um, I don't think enough people of, I talk about, I use a phrase of whiteness, which I know is it's a good <clears throat> wobbly, but I do it for a reason, and I write about it in the book <clears throat> as a distinction for talking about being white. And when, it's I, not when I call distance people white, myself. it's generally because they haven't found their identity. Yeah, and it's very much still rooted in that Western European, mm-hmm. it's, you know, notion of race. Right. Right. And so I write about, you know, in the book, other people have too that that white is a construct. Race is a construct. um, And we have to take it apart as that whiteness Mm -hmm. is like racism is real. It's a real thing that exists that people are or aspire to just like racism is a real thing. Right. So I'm not trying to avoid like I'm a white guy by saying I am of whiteness. It's like trying to position it in a bigger conversation. Because well, people need to understand that there are layers of that. It's not like being yeah. white is a construct. You're following all these different blah, blah, blah. Everything, yeah. is, everything that they've made you do. But when you start yeah. finding out who you are, your identity, yeah. where you come from, your traditions, all of those things, you have mm-hmm. an identity. You're no longer yeah. white. You're, mm-hmm. you're part of something now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's, it's all good to have that when I figure about who I was too. You know, it's yeah. it, it's lacking in a lot of settlers. It, yeah, it was painful. Yeah. It was a painful four months, three four months that I went through. But hey, here I am. But I think that you know it takes, like it's. I consider myself constantly a work in progress, yeah. and um, and my work is so deeply embedded in the troubling of whiteness, um, and the revealing of it, and also trying to find the right way to be uh, to be able to do the work, right? Because I was saying last night, like, you know, the, the decision to write about and from and under the guidance of Sophia Berthen wasn't a given in the big, at the start. Like I didn't suddenly go like, oh, I think I'll, this is my next book. Um, I was struggling with mental illness. I was going through like a real, like, tr- like difficult period. And I was writing was, cause I turned off everything. I stopped doing social media. I disengaged completely from the art world that I held, you know, a fairly significant position in. And I'd worked for 30 years within that environment, both independently and in, in senior roles. But I just started to write, you know, and, uh, writing was just, I needed to put my brain somewhere. Otherwise I would be like drawing spreadsheets on how to kill myself or a little plan. So I kind of focused on that and um, kind of initially, I just started to write about Hamilton, like what I remembered of the place. I walked a lot. And so I would walk, uh, go for long walks. And then I would write about that landscape and just try to draw everything I knew from like, what do I know about the escarpment? What do I know about the devil's punch bowl? And then I would do research and kind of just boo boo. And Sophia was somebody I had engaged with 
in the past in different ways with, with other folks. Uh, but I was walking around the marsh and what she refers to in her interview as the Dundas outlet. And I started to like, that's, I thought I want to go back in and, and start telling that story. And then it just emerged. It was just like, you know, once I reconnected to her, it was like, she almost demanded that, that you there, you have to figure this. There's a lot to figure out here. I'm putting on the table. It's like, I often say the interview, which she was interviewed in 1855 here by a man from Boston. Um, and her interview was published in a book that was 99.9% interviews with fugitive and former enslaved people from the United States who had fled North. Um, she is the only person in the book that exists um, in there who was enslaved in Canada. Her interview is totally unique. It is the only known first person account by somebody enslaved in Canada, right? And it was here in this, in this place. So anyways, I, I was spending time down around the marsh and stuff. And so I started to write. And then, of course, by writing about and trying to figure out all of the things, this gift of this interview um, that she is asking of me and by extension of whiteness, right? Um, that just sort of opened up a lot of questions. So it was, I knew early on, it wasn't like, you know, I'm not going to write a traditional biography. Um, that's not what I do. But also, how do you even do that? Uh, how do you write a, a biography of a person who's been erased, who only exists in a single record, whose existence has been systematically denied? Every time somebody talks about can't, there was no slavery in Canada, you are erasing Sophia. Right. right. And because the thing is, like, you know, we have this amazing document of her. We are so privileged that she agreed to be interviewed and to share this, you know, knowledge, which and it's a fairly, you know, longish interview. And uh, her memory is is a little bit, you know, off about some things and dates. But she was also almost 90 years old. The interview yeah. translated. But in that there is so much detail that you can triangulate and say she is remembering that actually happens. Right. Yeah. And so, but yeah, so the, what basically what happens is I just start to write and I'm writing more and more, <clears throat> but I didn't have a publisher. Nobody was asking me to do this. I just started to work on it and work on it. And then, you know, a publisher that I'd worked with in the past reached out just to see like, where did you go and what are you doing? And I told them yeah. about the book and then, then it kind of took off, but, in the process of making it, but there was never a given. It wasn't really until the beginning of this year that I, like we felt, I felt comfortable. This whole group of people that I worked in constant conversation and dialogue with um, as I developed it, people who are, you know, uh, of the African diaspora, deeply embedded in the research on slavery, both in Canada, the British empire, the United States, who would give me critical feedback. Um, uh, several like colleague friend mentors I've known for a long time, who uh, who are from Six Nations, you know, because Joseph Tyndinger, Joseph Brand is like a huge part of Sophia's story. Yeah. And anyways, and it wasn't in really until then that it started to shape and say, okay, this is a thing. I know this is a book. I'm. I feel like I should tell this story. I've I've done the work to position myself, but always that question. There's always the question is like, who am I to write this? Right? Like I'm a white guy. I'm a white man, and. I'm writing a book that is largely drawing from not just Sophia, but the voices of many black writers and theorists and artists from not just the present, but the past. Um, and then also there's a substantial amount in the book 
around indigenous cultures and histories because that's the landscape. Like whether whether Joseph Brandt had or hadn't, or whether he had ever engaged in chattel slavery, um, even if he hadn't, we would still have to go deep in the book because that's the landscape she her life is on, right? Like she yeah. is stolen and taken across New York at the heart at the like in the heart of the American Revolution and the dismantling and the destruction of the Longhouse and all that. So even without Brandt, you'd have to talk about that. Right. And so my approach was to uh, not in a kind of traditional sense of the of the authority white author um, and just write this and say, OK, here are my words. But to say, like, how do I write a book in conversation and constant dialogue and constantly be challenged and pushed? And I was so privileged by the group of people who are present in the book and and fully acknowledged um, for helping and really challenging me to get this right um, or as right, whatever that means, but also my editor. Like I, I was just so fortunate to have really, really Fazila Jiwa, who uh, was an amazing editor. And what happened coming back into the thing about white and whiteness is like I had at the very beginning, I wrote the opening chapter, uh, which is called What's in it, which is What's in a Name. And I basically take apart Sophia Burthen Pooley's name, like yeah. looking at the etymology of the name, what it means, right? Yeah. And in the second chapter, I, I kind of like, I'm a, you can see from my arm, there's like uh, Moby Dick on this arm and Moby Dick on this arm and Ahab Ishmael written on my wrist, but I'm obsessed kind of with Moby Dick as a narrative of, of colonial um, capitalist America and its destructiveness. And, uh, the second one of the chapters in Moby Dick is called on whiteness and he writes extensively about the whale. And so the second chapter in my book is called on whiteness because before awesome. we even get into it, I have to, I have to be very direct with my readers um, about how I am positioned. I don't want people trying to figure out like in bits and pieces through to the end of the book where I stand. Mm -hmm. on so, yeah. That's uh, one of the things too. I think that um, why why I guess white people um, glorify Joseph Brandt is because they can turn around and be like, oh well, he had slaves too. So yeah. well, yeah, Indians did it. Like, yeah. But what they don't is the actual words that come from the people, which yeah. are Joseph Brandt is a traitor. You know, he went and you know, fought for the colonial government. Mm -hmm. He went and did that kind of stuff. Like he broke the law consistently. You yeah. know, it was his sister that was the one trying to maintain the maintain yeah. the Bayonet Goa with Molly, yeah. You know, it was her, Molly. You yeah. know, and he was no hero. He was yeah. kicked out of here. He ran away. Yeah. And ultimately well, he ran away from nation too because everybody wanted to kill him. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Yeah. It was no he was no like outstanding person of the Mohawk. He was none of that kind of stuff. The only reason that he's glorified by the white community is because of those things that they did. You know, living with him guaranteed was not like living with the Mohawks. Guaranteed. You know, yeah, he had all that. Yeah. That's super important. I think like what happens within the context of the story of Sophia Bertha and Pooley, um, and is that um Joseph Brandt gets uh, and his his third wife Catherine like 
they become a very convenient uh, distraction from right that they're that, uh, from whiteness owning colonial uh, chattel slavery right um, because what you can do is go well he owns slaves therefore the token and that's the thing all indigenous people and cultures were slave owners right yeah wow. exactly. so yeah and so there's a couple of things one I, I was talking with um, Jeff Thomas uh, Jeff is uh, from Six Nations he's he lives in Ottawa now he's a scholar artist writer and we were talking about, um, you know, I talked with Jeff about the of like this this concept of what is quote slavery within um, indigenous cultures or other cultures around the globe, and how and you know Jeff talked about like within the history that communities, you know, uh, you're you're in conflict with another community, um, you lose people, they lose people, uh, people are are captured, they become but they eventually become absorbed in often into the community, yeah. right? Like, so it's complicated. It's, you know, it's never a happy story for anybody. Nobody wants to have their family killed and then taken, but then you are a person, right? right. You are considered a person and usually people become adopted. Like, so that all separate, that kind of history, that is not chattel slavery. That is not what Joseph Brandt was doing when he owns Sophia and maybe other people, but not as, as white historians often like say, Joseph Brown owned 30 to 40 slaves. That's so often repeated. It's impossible. Mm -hmm. And I, I won't go into that now, but it is, I work on it in the book. It's like, it is highly unlikely. And there's no historic evidence to support that Joseph Brown owned 30 or 40 enslaved people. It just, it would have been, a, it would have been like so over the top of numbers. And that's not to belittle, like to, lessen the enslavement of anybody but let's be realistic about an understanding of the of how slavery chattel slavery functioned within colonial canada under the british rule right yeah and it is kind of mega we don't even really we don't even you'll rarely hear joseph brant mentioned yeah kind of mega. Know, we're all this is the home of the peacemaker and that guy wasn't even a mohawk <laughs> you know like, and so. what about i've often been fascinated by by his third wife catherine whether yeah. she is talked about at all. It was very hard to find more than, you know, she kind of vanishes out of the narrative for a lot of people. Yeah. It's like, I know she was married to him or some people were. Um, and she is also like, that. like I would say that when Sophia Burson's story surfaces at any time within history or historical discussion, um, a lot of the stuff she deals with never gets talked about what gets focused on exclusively is her telling the story she had when she was interviewed by this man, Benjamin Drew, who wrote the book, he noticed that she had a lot of scars uh, on her face and her body. And she tells one story about being cut with a knife by Catherine Rank Grant. Mm -hmm. And that yeah. people just are like, ah, they go to that. What people don't go to is the, insertion into the interview by Benjamin Drew, which is, he said, you know, acknowledging this injury to her, he said, I saw many more, he uses the term citruses, right? Like cuts and scars on her that she didn't speak about that clear, that would have come from, from other people and other, from whiteness. Nobody talks about that. It's just like, ah, this indigenous woman did this, right? Right, indigenous Irish yeah. woman. And that's what they focus on, so they can take the guilt away. There's from always themselves. that, yeah. yeah. And yeah, and it goes back to what yeah, Nick exactly. talked about 
before about the fear and denial and trying to point outside um, to, you know, Brant. I, I come to the, like, I write about Brant as somebody who is very, a very colonized person. He Absolutely. is, right? Like he's an Anglican, he's a Mason, he's a British officer, and he's, as you guys know more, uh, a lot deeper than I do, uh, Andrew. Like um, he's a fucking traitor. Yeah, <laughs> land. He's a wheeler dealer in land. Very connected in business to all of yeah. the names of the Hats, the Beasleys, all of these people that were either directly owning enslaved people or. Um, well, that's the only reason why it's called Tyndanaga here is because he was close with Simcoe. Right. <laughs> like, yeah. yeah. That's the only reason because it's actually called Gundege. We didn't. Yeah. We never named things after people. It wasn't something yeah. that we did. <laughs> yeah. So I think for me, like in the book and the work, that is again, <clears throat> you, it's a, like it's a bit of a simplified. But there's like these two <clears throat> things that whiteness does and how it tells its story and builds its narrative. And one of it is to just simply flat out erase people. Just don't even acknowledge yeah. that they were present. And the other is to is to take over and take ownership of and shape, right? Um, your so-called, you know, allies or whatever, and spin that story. exactly. It's, yeah. it's like, well, I guess we couldn't kill them. We might as well write them out of history. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But yeah, so yeah, uh, we kept you for a little bit. We're definitely <laughs> going to have to get you on um, yeah. again because this is going to have to be like an ongoing conversation. Yeah, like I'd be happy to. Like yeah. some good stuff. Um, but thank you so much for joining yeah. us. Thanks again last night too for uh, popping oh, in yeah. on King's Court. That was fun. Um, Nick, yeah. do you have anything else before we uh, before we wrap up? Um, I was. Um, just, uh, oh, sorry, Nick. I didn't hear Nick. Oh, uh, being a white guy. Yes, thank you. I'll talk to you. Later. Um, yeah, I do want to. I do want to touch on that word whiteness, uh, and you know, pointing it out in public. Uh, if there's people out there that are are wanting to be uh, an ally or anything like that, uh, check your whiteness check your whiteness and then check it again because some of the stuff that people say think or just your daily way of life of going about things is totally infused with whiteness and you don't even realize it i didn't realize it mm -hmm. um mr hunter probably didn't realize it and, and a lot of people who are out there you know won't realize it until you get past a certain point in your life you're like wait a minute you know uh, yeah i'm pretty i'm pretty gross here i got to do something about this um, you know, and, and whiteness and racism, covert racism, it's gross. It's disgusting. Uh, it needs to be talked about. And, you know, I, I say this a lot. I'm, I make myself uncomfortable every single day. If I don't know something and I want to know it, I'll ask. If I don't ask, the message is going to come and it's going to make me uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. um, like I've been doing this work now for a year now or 30 episodes into red truth and white lies but you know Andrew still makes me uncomfortable with some of the stuff that we do just just by what I'm taught how he speaks how he, he puts things into perspective for me and I sit back and think about it for a few minutes you know um, the teacher mentor he's more of a mentor to me than a teacher that, that I've ever had yeah, I can and, imagine and, yeah yeah and, and to have yeah. to have that you know yeah initially I had fear to approach him just to, as a white guy, just because I know I'm white and I have whiteness about me. And when I came to it, you know, within, I think maybe the first three months of, of talking to him, like so much got corrected. And I know he saw it, 
but yeah. he saw it before I realized it and was able to correct it. And like, yeah. honestly, don't be afraid to go and sit and talk with native people. If you don't know where to begin, talk to one of us, send one of us a message. We'll hook you up, you know, like, don't be scared. Don't, like, don't be afraid. Don't be scared. You know, they're not going to start shooting you with bow and arrows and shit. Just, right. just don't, just don't be white. You know, just come yeah, there you, with an open mind. Do you call <laughs> them out your allies or like your actual liaison officers? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Why if I just comment on one more thing before I return <laughs> yeah. to my to Zag? Um, two term, like the term ally and allyship, I I, I think about a lot because I think about um, a lot about the where words come from and what their meanings have been, and so I guess my my speaking to other people of whiteness is 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 thinking about what out what being an ally really means his and too often and the british are the great example of this is for the british historically if you look at american revolution war of 1812 right up to the present for them what were allies they were people you could who could come and fight with you uh to support your cause like that's right. how you saw your ally it wasn't you didn't treat them respectively as an equal. And so historically what the British and most colonial powers have done is, is oh, we can use you uh, to fight our fight with us to get, so that we can get to where we want to go. But once I don't need you, I will throw you under the bus kind of thing. That's right. That's, what happened. that's exactly what happened with me. Yeah, that's what happened with that's the exactly, long right? It's like exactly end of the American Revolution under the bus. Like you're not, we're just going to give everything. So I think it's really important for folks uh, who are speaking about themselves as like, I want to be an ally. I'm trying to be a good ally to remember that your job, your role, your responsibility in a, in being a treaty person and being of whiteness is yeah. to follow the lead is yeah. to work in support of that. It has to be allyship has to be beneficial to mm -hmm. the people. This is why we're calling it a, calling it an accomplice for a while. A yeah, yeah. 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 So I just want to stress that these are things that I, you know, I try to sh like be a good person uh, and share things that I've learned and a lot of it the hard way. And um, and I think that goes back to just the last thing I'll say. What Nick brought up is really important. Um, uh, you don't learn, you don't get any further along the journey unless you're willing um, to be called out and to listen. And one of the big things you know, I have to work hard at being somebody of whiteness who I can talk and I like to share information and stuff. But um, I wasn't always a great listener, right? Like I didn't, you know, and I was fortunate. A lot of people felt confident to call me out on that. And I could either be defensive or I could hear it, right? And um, and I'm still working on that. I'm still working on that. Yeah. Yeah. And well, it's always healing every day for everybody. Thank you so much for joining us today. Yeah. Um, Thank you. I really appreciate it. Yeah. And I hope to do another episode again soon.